Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, missile barrage. Kyiv, the target of a massive Russian airstrike Friday as ministers from seven African nations arrive for talks. No casualties reported so far. All this amid reports of fierce battles between Ukrainian and Russian forces in the east and the south of the country. We'll discuss the state of Ukraine's counteroffensive with Finland's defence minister and CNN military analyst Cedric uh, Layton. Plus a deadly storm. At least three people killed and dozens injured after a massive tornado rips through Periton, Texas, causing severe damage. We'll bring you the latest on that. And Bill in Beijing, billionaire Bill Gates, holding talks with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on Friday. It's Xi's first known meeting in years with a top U.S. business leader. All this as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to China for talks this weekend. A live report just ahead. And on the global markets, U.S. stocks on target for a solidly higher open after an across-the-board rally on Thursday. The S&P 500 coming off its sixth straight day of gains and beginning today's session at a 14-month high. Stocks holding up well amid the debate over the Federal Reserve's next moves. European markets higher too, even as the ECB vows there will be more rate hikes. The IMF saying today it's in favour of the ECB tightening further. Asia closing out the week on a high note as the Japanese central bank leaves rates unchanged. Uh, Lots to get through this hour. Let's begin, though, with the latest on Ukraine. Uh, Rockets over Kyiv, even as leaders from seven African nations arrived in the Ukrainian capital as part of a peace mission. The African delegation, which includes South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, will meet with Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky today uh, before heading to Russia for talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin on Saturday. Sam Kiley joins me now uh, live from Kyiv. What do you make about the timing of these latest missiles, Sam? Well, I think uh, it could indicate uh, one of two things, uh, uh, to be honest, Max. Uh, the first is that the Russians are prosecuting a military agenda without regard for the diplomatic fallout, if you'll excuse the pun, of firing missiles into a capital city at a time when heads of government and ministers and heads of state indeed are visiting from an important continent that the Kremlin itself is trying to court uh, or they're sending a message to those African leaders that they are trying to court that they just don't matter because uh, in the past there's been a bit of an, an understanding that when major world dignitaries, heads of government, heads of state come to Kyiv the Russians appear to ease off in terms of their strikes. But that wasn't the case last night with them firing, among other things, six Kinzhal missiles, which were brought down, uh, one assumes, by Patriot missiles. The Germans have just announced they're going to give an extra 40 missiles, not missile systems, but 40 missiles, to replenish the stocks that are fast dwindling uh, for the Ukrainians. Uh, There are other pledges, of course, coming from other allies. But the Africans, in particular, the form of uh, South African President Simul Ramaphosa 
have been very close to the Kremlin in many ways recently with uh, joint military exercises with South Africa, South African head of the armed forces visiting Moscow, uh, the uh, Sergei Lavrov, the South African foreign minister attending a meeting, diplomatic meetings in South Africa and the United States accusing South Africa of effectively uh, supplying arms, even breach of an arms embargo potentially against Russia. So all of this adding up to what should have been rather cordial relations and therefore an easing off of the airstrikes against uh, the African leaders that have come here. But we saw the exact reverse, Max. A lot of African leaders obviously um, used to being lectured by the by the West on how to handle their own conflicts. How do you think they're going into these talks and what sort of solutions do you think they'll be suggesting? Well, from a benign perspective, if one puts aside for a second the fact that many of these African leaders are uh, schooled in the uh, history of the Cold War, as we all are of a certain age, and therefore understand that they can play uh, Russia or what was the Soviet Union, now Russia, off against Western interests to their own advantage. So there may be some advantage that they're prosecuting there. But these are also people who have experience in many cases of conflicts themselves. The South Africans, of course, emerge from the conflict that was apartheid. Uh, others among them have either been in or, 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 or even enduring the effects of, of civil war in the past or in pan-national war. So they have a lot of experience. Their proposals, though, are the sorts of proposals that, among other things, they're very close, really, to the international view, to the Ukrainian view, which is that there should be a complete Russian withdrawal from the territories that they've illegally occupied in this country. That is going to be, uh, or, or inevitably will be, rejected by Russia. But they're hoping, perhaps, that because of their uh, role in, able, in that they're able to talk to both sides, perhaps they can achieve a breakthrough. Uh, that clearly has been somewhat undermined by a missile attack against the capital that they're visiting when they were on schedule to meet with the country's president. They may be a little bit anxious that uh, perhaps they may be targeted along with President Zelensky later on today, perhaps. Uh, the Kremlin says Putin supports any set of ideas to end conflict in Ukraine. Uh, what do you think he meant by that and how will it be received where you are? Uh, well, he doesn't support the idea that he should unilaterally withdraw from Ukraine uh, because he doesn't believe that Ukraine has a right to exist. So it's not really going to get anywhere uh, in uh, the discussions. There are no discussions. There's no prospect whatsoever of the Ukrainians joining any kind of diplomatic initiative that doesn't begin with a total withdrawal of every single Russian soldier from every inch of Ukrainian territory. That is their position right now. That is a position that their NATO partners are full-throated in their support of. Whether that's a position that uh, prevails over the, over the next few years, depending on how this war goes, uh, I think will be uh, open to question. But they are intent on driving the Russians out of their territory. They've launched this counteroffensive, heavy fighting in the southeast, as you said there, Max, and in the east. That is expected to increase. Uh, there is increasing amount of support coming from NATO partners to allow that counteroffensive by the Ukrainians uh, to be prosecuted. There is a hope among the allies that the Russians will be driven out. There's also criticism of those allies that they always supply too little too late, that they're not really giving the Ukrainians the strategic edge, at least not yet, Max. OK, Sam Kiley, thanks for joining us from Kyiv.
Right now, President Putin is addressing Russia's flagship economic forum in St. Petersburg. It's an annual meeting of international business figures and officials, but this year it's been snubbed by the bulk of Western companies. Mr. Putin is discussing a range of issues. So far, he's told delegates that Russia's economy may grow up to 2% this year and said Russia will increase defence spending to reinforce security. Now to Sudan, where fighting has now entered its third month with no end in sight. More than 2,000 people are believed to have been killed, and the UN reports most hospitals near conflict areas are out of service. Doctors Without Borders describes the situation in the capital Khartoum as profoundly chaotic and violent. Fighting broke out in April between Sudan's army and the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. And CNN will take a closer look at the conflict throughout the day. In an exclusive report, CNN's Nema Elbegir uh, reveals how the notorious Russian mercenary group Wagner is playing a key role in the fight. Here's a preview. The fighting on the streets of Sudan is relentless. Ceasefire after ceasefire has not held. The RSF's key ally, the notorious Russian mercenary group Wagner, has been sustaining their fight and providing the impetus to slaughter innocent people by supplying arms. We're going to show you how. You can see Nema's full report later today, 3 p.m. in London, 4 p.m. in Khartoum, right here on CNN. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to China in just a few hours, a trip that's been delayed for several months amid a strained relations between the two superpowers. Uh, Blinken was originally supposed to visit China in February, but that trip was cancelled when a suspected Chinese spy balloon was discovered floating over the U.S. Chinese state media has little to say about what will be the most senior visit by an American official in five years. Uh, New developments in the migrant boat disaster. Meanwhile, nine Egyptians have been arrested in Greece on suspicion of human trafficking, human smuggling. As many as 750 people have been on board when the overcrowded ship capsized off Greece on Wednesday. Only about 100 were rescued. Melissa Bell has the latest from the port of Kalamata. Nine Egyptian men have been arrested on suspicion of people trafficking, just some of those who survived the disaster of Wednesday morning here, not far from the coast off of Greece. Uh, Those men now are under arrest. The other survivors, most of them, those who are not still in hospital, have now been transferred towards Athens where their asylum applications will be processed. It is, of course, the fate of the other now believed to have been many hundreds who may have lost their lives that has been forefront of the mind of so many people hoping for answers. Some of those desperate relatives have turned up here in Kalamata hoping that their loved ones had survived. As the survivors were taken away to Athens, one man who'd been looking for his brother was able to see him, touch him, hold him uh, through a fence. Most of those who turned up here in Kalamata, of course, Uh, were disappointed given the scale of the tragedy. It is now believed that 750 people may have been travelling on the boat. We may never know their true numbers and we're unlikely ever to know their actual names. We do understand from the survivors that there were women and children on board. They were in the hold and, of course, given what the Greek Coast Guard say about the 10 to 15 minutes that it took for the boat to sink, they had very little hope of being able to make it out. What the NGOs that work in places like Kalamata and all around the Mediterranean fear now is that given the tightening of European policies with regard uh, to immigration, that these kinds of tragedies may actually increase. Melissa Bell, CNN, Kalamata, Greece. Right. um, Meanwhile, President Xi 
um, hosting Bill Gates, as we were saying earlier. But as far as we know, it's the president's first one-on-one with a Western business leader, a Western business figure, really, in, in years. Uh, let's speak to Anna Corrin and see what she makes of all of this. I mean, this is about his philanthropic work more than, obviously, his tech work, but still a significant moment for American business. Absolutely. And just the optics, you know, Bill Gates was was given a very warm welcome by the Chinese leader Xi Jinping today in Beijing. Gates is there to discuss global health issues as the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and specifically to renew its collaboration with the Beijing government to develop innovative therapies for infectious diseases. But you know, she referred to Gates as this friend and, and said they hadn't seen each other for more than three years. Obviously, that was due to COVID and China basically cutting itself off from the world during the pandemic. And she spoke very fondly of Bill Gates as someone who has done a lot for China's development. Let's take a listen. You're the first American friend I've met in Beijing this year. I often say, The basis of China-U.S. relations is among the people. We've always placed our hopes on the American people. In today's world, we can engage in all sorts of activities beneficial to our two countries, to the people of the two countries and all of humanity. We're all pushing forward in this aspect. You don't often see, you know, Xi Jinping smiling, but he he was really happy to see Bill Gates. Uh, Gates uh, has been in China since Wednesday. Upon arriving, he tweeted, and let me read this to you, uh, solving problems like climate change, health inequity and food insecurity requires innovation uh, from developing malaria drugs to investing in climate adaptation. China has a lot of experience in that. We need to unlock that kind of progress for more people around the world. Uh, Now, Gates stepped down from the Microsoft board back in 2020 to focus on his philanthropy. Uh, The last reported meeting between she and Gates was in 2015, and she wrote a letter to Gates uh, and his foundation beginning of the pandemic, thanking them for their support for China's fight against COVID. Let's have a listen now to what Bill Gates had to say during the meeting. Very honoured. Uh, to have this chance to meet uh, and we've always had great conversations and uh, we'll have a, a lot of important topics uh, to discuss today. I was very disappointed I couldn't come uh, during these last four years uh, and so it's very exciting to be back. Max, uh, Bill Gates' visit comes at a time when tensions are are very high between the United States and China, as we know. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State, as you mentioned, Antony Blinken, will arrive in China this weekend in an attempt to really reset relations. But as we've heard from the State Department, expectations are low. Uh, His trip was originally scheduled for February. That was obviously postponed due to the suspected Chinese spy balloon that flew over the U.S. airspace. Uh, She may have given a very warm welcome to, to Bill Gates, but it's uncertain if he will even meet with Antony Blinken. Neither China or the US have confirmed who, in fact, Blinken will be meeting with Max. Okay, Uh, Anna Corrin in Hong Kong. Thank you. Pope Francis has been discharged from hospital as he recovers from surgery. He greeted well-wishers and medical staff as he left Rome's uh, Gemelli Hospital after nine days where he'd been treated for an abdominal hernia. His doctor said the pontiff was stronger than before having surgery and is already back at work. Barbie Nado is in Rome, but he'll have to rest, presumably, so he won't be able to keep up the schedule that he may have planned before. 
That's right. We do know, however, Max, that he is planning to give his Sunday Angelus uh, over from his window over St. Peter's Square, where lots of people, especially this time of the year, gather down in the piazza to be blessed by the Pope and to hear his address. We do know that is, unless something happens, of course, confirmed for Sunday. But he did cancel his usual Wednesday audience. That's a big, long affair that he holds every Wednesday uh, throughout the summer, with the exception of July. So he's going to be resting. He is going to be meeting leaders of Brazil and Cuba next week. Those private audiences are still uh, on the schedule, at least for now. Uh, after he left the hospital, he went to the Basilica of St. Mary Major here in Rome. This is a place he always goes uh, before and after his trips abroad, and, and it was appropriate. He felt, uh, obviously, today at the time to go give thanks there and, and, and spend a few minutes in prayer before going back to Vatican City, uh, where we presume he's resting today, getting back, uh, you know, more used to being at home after this long hospital stay. He underwent a three-hour surgery last Wednesday, uh, which doctors say wasn't an emergency surgery, but instead was uh, meant to try to alleviate worsening pain. All of this, of course, leading up to a really big uh, schedule coming up in August. He's to go uh, to World Youth Day in Portugal the first week of August, and then a few weeks later, end of August, he's expected to be in Mongolia. So those are big trips for an 86-year-old man. Uh, but he's proven he's got the stamina and energy of someone much younger than him. Max? Yeah, he did look on good form. Bobby, thank you for joining us from Rome. Uh, straight ahead, cyber attacks hit a number of U.S. government agencies. What we're learning about the hack and how Washington plans to respond after the break. And later this hour, with Kyiv under fire from Russian missiles, we'll have the latest on the balance of the war, along with a warning from Finland's Minister of Defence. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In Canada, at least 15 people have died and 10 people were injured after a semi-trailer truck collided with a bus carrying senior citizens. Police in Manitoba say it's one of the worst ever traffic accidents in that province. From Ottawa, CNN's Paula Newton reports. Police officials were clear to say this was no local accident. In fact, they say that so many people are still reeling from what has become now a national tragedy. What we know, we know that a group of seniors, about 25 of them, were traveling about a two-hour drive on a bus to go to a casino in Manitoba. That casino, uh, Sand Hills, confirms to CNN that they were supposed to be there throughout the afternoon. That bus approached a four-lane highway and in attempting to cross it was hit by a large tractor trailer, a large truck. Uh, apparently uh, the accident seen for miles, there was smoke billowing 
flames. People rushed to the scene and attempted to help those who were there. But people describe a, a very grim scene uh, with so many people having to be triaged there by the side of the highway. Um, I, I want you to listen now uh, to the police official uh, describing what it's going to take now to try and figure out exactly why this happened. Listen. So this is, is, this is new for us and our investigators, and it's very emotionally draining for them as well. And as I mentioned, this is a very complex, large investigation with lots of, uh, lots of things we have to un- unfold and unpack. Now, police say a forensic reconstruction team will be on the scene to try and figure out what happened. You have to remember, witnesses say that the skies were blue, the uh, road was dry. There really isn't an explanation so far. Um, They also said a couple of other interesting things. They say that perhaps there was a stop sign missing there at the intersection. Police wouldn't speculate, but say it's something that they're investigating. And also, crucially, that the two drivers had survived and while they are injured a police will speak to them uh, when it's time and in fact hospital officials say that they still do not have a status report uh, on those injured. Paul Newton, CNN, Ottawa. The U.S. says it's assessing the damage from cyber attacks that impacted several government agencies on Thursday. The breach is being blamed on Russian hackers known for extorting ransoms from their victims. It came just a few days after hackers targeted U.K. organizations, including British Airways and the BBC. Natasha Bertrand is in Washington. Um, Is the suspicion that it's the same group responsible for all of these hacks? That appears to be the case, Max, but U.S. officials still say that there could be some other criminal hackers who are taking advantage of this software vulnerability to then attack uh, certain entities themselves, right? So basically, once the the vulnerability and the flaw in the software has been discovered, it really could be exploited by other hackers as well. Now, this uh, Russian criminal hacking group is known uh, for extorting ransoms from its victims. And right now, what we're told is that they have not asked for any ransoms from U.S. federal agencies. However, they have done so for other entities, including universities and other state and local uh, uh, entities. And so what appears to have happened here is that this file transfer software, widely used file transfer software, had this flaw in it that these Russian hackers exploited. Now we're hearing from the company that owns that file transfer software that, that there actually could be a second vulnerability. Uh, So they are working to patch that right now. But yesterday we were told that several federal agencies have been impacted by this hack, including the Department of Energy. Now, two entities within the Department of Energy apparently had some of their files stolen, and they're still doing a damage assessment to figure out just what was taken. Uh, But broadly, U.S. officials uh, told reporters yesterday that there is not expected to be a huge impact on U.S. government agencies uh, at the federal level. It is not clear what they have been able to access or steal, but it could have a bigger impact on individuals uh, at the at the local level. So according to state uh, officials from Louisiana and Oregon, millions of people might have had their data exposed in this hack. And so they are trying to figure out exactly the extent uh, of what might have been uh, exposed, including potentially social security numbers uh, and driver's licenses. So a really wide ranging hack here that has hit uh, really entities across the world down to the individual uh, people who might have had their data exposed. And the U.S. government now is really racing against the clock to figure out the extent of the hack, the scale and the scope of it so that they can uh, figure out how to prevent against something like this in the future, Max. Natasha, thank you. 
Welcome back to extreme weather in the state of Texas. Three people have died and around 100 were injured after a tornado ripped through a small town. Close. Uh, around 200 homes in Periton have been destroyed. The mayor says that much of the town, with a population of just 8,000, is in ruins. Tornadoes were reported across large swathes of, of uh, the U.S. overnight. Nearly 400,000 people in Texas, Florida, Oklahoma and Alabama are still without power. Lucy Kavanaugh is live in Periton. Uh, Texas. I mean, uh, some of these videos are extraordinary. They get so close to the tornado. You see the damage it's doing. And of course, there were several homes there that were mobile homes. So they got utterly destroyed. Those kinds of homes almost have no chance against a tornado of, of this force and uh, veracity. The cleanup efforts are beginning behind me. You can see the scale of the destruction. Folks here stunned not just at how much got turned to rubble, but also how quickly all of this unfolded. People here are used to tornadoes. There are shelters just for that cause, but there was no time to get to safety when this hit yesterday. A deadly tornado touching down in a Texas panhandle, leaving a brutal path of destruction in Perryton. Tornado is just uh, 100 yards or so right there. Large hail pelted down as the tornado moved through the area. And soon after, a possible second, smaller tornado was seen as well. One storm chaser says there was very little warning ahead of this tornado as the funnel cloud formed very quickly. Whenever I was flying around, uh, it looked like people were just having to self-rescue themselves. People were, were climbing out of rubble. Um, you know, there was the fire nearby. As many as 200 homes were destroyed, according to the town's fire chief, and some of those homes were completely leveled, as seen in this aerial video, shot in the tornado's aftermath. This whole area is just wide. One nearby resident drove through Perryton in the tornado's wake and documented the damages. There's tanks, oil field tanks. That right there is a, that is a trailer. An oil-filled trailer. Texas Governor Greg Abbott deploying the state's emergency response resources. The surrounding cities and counties also rushed to the area to provide aid. In neighboring Hansford County, the county judge says they are preparing to assist for a possible mass casualty and or recovery event. The Red Cross is mobilizing teams to offer support on the ground. The local high school is opening its doors to offer shelter to those in need. Uh, I think that there's a, a sense of fear just of the unknown. I don't, I don't think anybody really has any idea what's going to happen next. Um, the, the shock is still sitting, sitting in, the, the sadness, the anger, the gr every, every emotion that people can be going through, they're going through. The Interim County Hospital CEO says it's operating off generators, which can only last for a little over 72 hours. She says the hospital has treated somewhere between 75 and 100 people with injuries. Anything from minor lacerations to major traumas, head injuries, uh, collapsed lungs, broken legs, major lacerations, um, a little bit of everything. And Max, when we arrived here in the dead of night, it was eerily quiet. There was a curfew. Now, power diggers behind me, the sound of uh, electric saws, the cleanup efforts 
are slowly beginning, but it is going to take time. Take a look at that mangled piece of metal behind me. That was supposed to be a cell phone tower snapped in half as if it was a child's toy. People doing cleanup efforts over there. A lot of this town is still without power. It is going to take time for the electricity to get turned back on. And of course, for all of those folks who lost their homes, who lost everything that they need to survive, that getting back to normal is going to take time. Max? Yeah, that scene yesterday must have been something else. Lucy Kavanaugh in Periton, Texas. Thank you. Uh, the northern state of Montana is emerging as a key climate battleground in the U.S. presidential race. Now there's a group of so-called climate kids who are taking on their state's um, addiction uh, to fossil fuels. CNN's Bill Weir reports. In big sky country, it's a story fit for a big screen. You got this, guys. We love you. On one side, 16 young people from ranches, reservations and boom towns across Montana ranging in age from 5 to 22. On the other side, the Republican-led state of Montana, which lost a three-year fight to keep this case out of court, but is still determined to let fossil fuels keep flowing, despite the warnings from science that burning them will only melt more glaciers, blacken more skies, and ravage more rivers. Based on the evidence you've seen, does it point to harm for these youth plaintiffs? harm now and accelerating harm in the future. And the whole plot pivots around the Montana Constitution that promises the state shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment for present and future generations. They've filed seven different motions to try and have the case dismissed. And none of those motions have been successful. While the first week included scientists testifying to the data, Dr. Stanford has fishing for bull trout and native cutthroat trout already been impacted by climate change. Oh, very definitely. The emotion has come from plaintiffs laying out their stories of loss. You know, it's really scary seeing what you care for disappear right in front of your eyes. How does it make you feel knowing that the state is not considering climate impacts in its permitting decisions? makes me feel like the state is prioritizing profits over people um, because they know that there is visible harm coming to the land and to the people, and they're still choosing to make money instead of care for Montanans. While the state's attorneys briefly question a plaintiff's ability to connect her mental health to the climate, they've mainly saved cross-examination for the experts. If the judge ordered that we stop using fossil fuels in Montana, would that get us to the point where these plaintiffs are no longer being harmed, in your opinion? We can't tell in advance because what has been shown in history over and over and over again is when a significant social movement is needed, it often is started by one or two or three people. I know that climate change is a global issue, but Judge Kathy Seeley doesn't have the power to shut down any extraction or usage of fossil fuels, but a judgment for the young plaintiffs could set a powerful precedent for our children's trust. I think we're really at a tipping point right now. The Oregon nonprofit is also helping kids in Hawaii sue their state over tailpipe emissions. And they've revived Juliana v. United States, the federal case that could end up before the Supreme Court. I just recently graduated high school, but I 
I think it's something everyone knows is that we have three branches of government for a reason. The judicial branch is there to keep a check on the other two branches, and that's what we're doing here. Claire Vlasis grew up in beautiful, booming Bozeman, and like the other kids too young to vote, she sees the courts as the only place for someone like her to have a voice. It's hard knowing the power to make changes in the hands of other people, mm-hmm. especially my government. Mm-hmm. And I hope that as a young person, you know, we might actually have a chance to make a difference. And for my, for my life and for my kids' life, you know, not all hope may be lost. CNN's Bill Weir reporting. Coming up, an historic week for both NATO and Finland. NATO officials welcoming the Finnish defence minister into the fold. We'll speak to him about his hopes for NATO membership and his warning over Ukraine as well coming up. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the final session of the trading week, a mostly higher open uh, with Dow and the S&P currently in the lead there. All this after a more than 1% jump for the major averages on Thursday. So pretty buoyant. The S&P and the Nasdaq now trading at their highest levels in 14 months. Stocks holding up well, despite the Fed's warning that it may raise rates two more times uh, this year. Investors believing the economy can withstand a few more hikes, some questioning whether the Fed will be able to follow through on its rate hike threats. So that's all playing into this. Uh, turning once again to the war in Ukraine, though, Kyiv saying today that its military forces have achieved some success in battles with Russian forces in the south and the east of the country. But Russia is said to be putting up strong resistance. And Moscow says it beat back Ukrainian offensive operations in the Zaporizhia region. All this as NATO defence ministers met in Brussels to discuss a long term security package for Ukraine. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg saying NATO support for Kyiv is making a difference on the battlefield. Let's get an update on the state then of the Ukrainian offensive with our military analyst, Cedric Leighton. It's difficult to tell uh, what progress they're making. It's, it's certainly slow, isn't it? But steady. That's right, Max. It's uh, it's very slow, but it is steady. And there are certain areas like area around Bakhmut and in the southeast uh, around Saporizhia, where the Ukrainians have actually made a little bit of progress. Uh, but this isn't the kind of progress, Max, that uh, you would uh, see in a D-Day-like situation or anything like that. What you're seeing here is an incremental uh, use of their forces. They're basically doing what's known as a reconnaissance in force uh, in some of these areas. And what they're trying to do is probe the Russian lines, probe the Russian defences to see what points of weakness there are. Uh, From what movements you've seen so far, have you worked out any possible wider strategy they may be embarking on? 
Yes, I think one of the key areas that they're looking at is the southeastern area, in other words, the land bridge between occupied Crimea and the occupied portions of the Donbas. Uh, this land bridge connects those two areas. And what the Ukrainians are trying to do, it appears to me, is they're trying to cut that area. So what that would mean is they would be able to perhaps go to a town like Mariupol, which is on the Sea of Azov, and uh, take that. If they were able to do that, uh, then uh, that would uh, inflict a bit of a defeat on the Russians, uh, and it would make it much more difficult for them to maintain their forces in this area. Uh, it'd separate them, wouldn't it? So that would be, you know, one side would be trapped effectively. That's right. And uh, if that were to happen, that could put the Russians in a much weaker position, uh, both militarily and geopolitically. And in that sense, the Ukrainians would have achieved a major goal uh, on their way to liberating their country from uh, Russian forces that are occupying parts of it. Uh, we've heard from Western leaders how they're in this for the long haul. I mean, have you any idea um, how long that you know they're looking at in terms of supporting Ukraine? Yeah, this is one of those areas that it's probably difficult to assess, but every indication right now, Max, is that they are uh, really looking at a very long, protracted conflict. Uh, this conflict could have many different phases. Uh, it could be one in which you see offensive operations or counteroffensives, like the one that we're seeing right now. Uh, or it could be one in which things are relatively static, like it was for the last few months. Uh, so this could be something that goes on uh, for the next, uh, unfortunately, decade or so. If that happens, that would really test the NATO resolve to support uh, Ukraine. It would uh, you know, create some tensions, and uh, there would, is obviously the risk uh, that the Western powers would tire of supporting Ukraine. That can't happen if they're willing uh, to defend Ukraine and if they're willing to go into this area. So they must uh, you make sure that they have the right munitions for the Ukrainians, that they provide the right support, and that they make the Ukrainian forces more interoperable with the Western forces. In terms of the fighter jets, that would be, um, you know, that would be certainly speed up the offensive, right? But we're not looking at, I mean, when might they arrive? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very interesting question because the training pipeline for, let's say, an F-16, which is the most commonly discussed uh, fighter jet for uh, the Ukrainians to possibly receive, uh, we're talking a minimum of four to five months on a very sped up uh, timeline. Normally, an American fighter pilot uh, takes about a year of regular pilot training, which the Ukrainians already have, uh, but then another 10 months or so uh, to learn the intricacies of the F-16. So that uh, you know, would be a, a very different timeline than what we're operating under right now. But it would be necessary to implement that if NATO is really serious about making sure that Ukraine doesn't suffer the fate that it did uh, back in February of last year. OK, uh, thank you so much for um, joining us with that and your insight there, Leighton. Now, uh, Finnish Defence Minister Antti Konan is uh, assuring allies that his country's incoming coalition government will support uh, Ukraine, continue to support Ukraine, but he says he's worried about the duration of the war. He sees no signs that the conflict will end soon. Kaikonen is attending the NATO Defence Minister's meeting in Brussels, and he joins us from there now. Uh, Finland, of course, becoming the 31st member of NATO in April, um, the key member now. Uh, we're just hearing there from our analysts how the length of this war, possibly up to 10 years, is what might test NATO the most. Is that something uh, you agree with? 
yes, uh, I'm afraid that this war will take a long time. I'm afraid it, it's it's not about months, it's about longer time. Is it a year or three years or ten years? That's very difficult to, to say, but uh, hopefully someday this this horrible war is over. But I think we should prepare for, for, for that, that it will take a long time, unfortunately. Is Finland committed to up to 10 years, for example? We are committed to to um, support Ukraine as long as as needed. If it's 10 years, we are committed to that. Uh, one of the big concerns about Finland obviously joining um, NATO was that Russia may see it as an aggressive act for NATO you know, equipment and forces to come into Finland. What will be the relationship in terms of how you operate with NATO within your own borders and what goes up against the Russian border? Yes, we have a long border borderline to Russia, more than 1,300 kilometers. So it's actually more than the uh, other NATO countries together. But, uh, well, we live there for all our history so uh, so we can we can live with that but uh, of course the relationship with Russia is not so good at the moment and it seems that there will be a long cold era between uh, the relations bit- between uh, Finland and European Union the NATO and Russia um, I, it's the situation are, unfortunately are you going to allow NATO troops and equipment um, into Finland for more permanent positions? Well, that's something that we will discuss in the near future. Uh, we will have a new government soon, and uh, I'm sure that that's on the agenda of the new government. But we've, we've done more exercising with NATO countries, and uh, we find that that's very useful for us, and I believe it's good for NATO countries as as well. We have uh, actually quite quite capable army ourselves already, for example, one of the strongest artilleries in Europe and the wartime capacity of our defense forces is 280,000 soldiers. So uh, I bring, I, I believe that we can bring also some added value to NATO. So mm-hmm. Finland joining NATO, it's a win-win situation. I think it's good for Finland, but I believe it's good for NATO as well. Are you able to give us a progress update on Sweden's membership of NATO? Because obviously you've been working with Turkey to find some sort of agreement because Turkey uh, is, the, is what's blocking uh, this uh, a swifter movement into NATO. Well, I think it would be very good to have Sweden to join NATO as soon as possible. And uh, well, of course, it was also debated in this meeting here in, in Brussels. Uh, Many countries said that uh, it's important to have Sweden uh, to become a full member of NATO soon. Uh, we have the Vilnius summit uh, in a month, and uh, I think that's that would be a good goal for Swedish full membership. Uh, I believe it's possible, but uh, well, it's in Turkish and Hungary's hands at the moment, so uh, we'll see. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Antti. Kikonen um, from Finland, but actually at the NATO summit. Thank you so much for joining us. Two climbers have just done something no one else has done. They've become the first deaf Americans to reach the summit. Here's Anna Corrin with their amazing story. 
This is the moment Scott Lehman and Shana Unger reached the top of the tallest peak on the planet. In doing so, they became the first deaf Americans to summit Mount Everest. Shana also made history as the first deaf woman in the world to successfully complete the climb. When we got to the top, we felt like we defeated all the odds. We were really proud of ourselves. It proves that with the right attitude and the right adjustments, that space is available for deaf and hard of hearing people. Unfortunately, their triumph was later tinged with sadness as they learned that Muhammad Hawari Hashim, a deaf climber from Malaysia who they had befriended on the mountain, had gone missing after his successful ascent on May 18th. A search and rescue operation has failed to find him. While summiting Everest is an impressive achievement in itself, Scott and Shana have even loftier ambitions. The couple are aiming to be the first deaf individuals to climb the highest mountain on each continent, known as the Seven Summits. Their Everest expedition puts them over halfway to reaching that goal. We are still processing Everest, but for sure next will be one of the three Seven Summits. Which one, we are not sure. The educators from the Washington DC area were both born profoundly deaf. Due to a lack of accessibility for the deaf community in outdoor education, Scott and Shana learned many of their mountaineering skills from YouTube videos. In turn, they've been sharing their experiences online, documenting everything from life at Everest Base Camp to the specific challenges they've faced on their expeditions. Scott and Shana use social media to explain how they manage logistics on mountain routes and navigate common misconceptions about their abilities as deaf climbers. The duo are committed to making mountain climbing more accessible to people from marginalised communities, especially deaf and hard of hearing youth. I want all kids to dream bigger. A mission that will be top of mind when they scale their next summit. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Good on them. Uh, Prince Harry and Meghan may be out of the pod podcasting business, but just for now, probably. Their company, Archwell, has ended its partnership with Spotify. A joint statement said the decision was mutual. In December 2020, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex said they had agreed to produce several programmes. However, a podcast and a holiday special were the only ones that actually came to fruition. The separation comes two weeks after Spotify announced 200 job cuts. And finally, a problem of biblical proportions. A town in Nevada is dealing with a plague of crickets. Swarms of migrating Mormon crickets, as they're called, have taken over every space in, the, in Elko. The good news is they don't bite people. The bad news is they do consume a lot of crops. At first, local people were just curious. Now they want the bugs to go away. While it seems apocalyptic, uh, scientists say this type of swarm isn't unusual. It's just more noticeable when it happens in populated areas like that. Time for me to hop it. <laughs> uh, that is it for the show. Connect the World is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.